0: about fly fishing internet radio your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water warm water and salt water hello i'm roger maves your host for tonight's show on this broadcast we'll be featuring tom rosenbauer and he'll be answering your questions on finding trout the show will be 90 minutes in length and we're broadcasting live over the internet if you'd like to ask tom a question just go to our home page at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the q a text box to send us your question We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms for your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Tom Rosenbauer about finding trout. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. That's leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Tom, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Flyfishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, And look for the link under Tom's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Tom's latest book, The Orvers' Guide to Finding Trout, courtesy of Lions Press. And to learn more about what Lions Press has to offer, visit lionspress.com. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Tom and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. This is the same text box that you can use to ask questions during the live show. So listen closely, take some notes, pay attention, and type fast, and we'll see. and You may be the proud new owner of Tom's latest book, The Orvis Guide to Finding Trout. Our guest tonight is Tom Rosenbauer. Tom has been with the Orvis company since 1976, and while there has been a fishing school instructor, copywriter, public relations director, merchandise manager, and was the editor of the Orvis News for 10 years. He is currently their chief marketing enthusiast, which is what they call people when they don't know what else to do with them. As merchandise manager, web merchandiser, and catalog director, the titles under his direction have won numerous gold medals in the multi-channel Merchant Awards. Tom was awarded Fly, Rod, and Reels Angler of the Year Award for 2011 for his educational efforts through his books, magazine articles, and podcasts. He has fished extensively across North America and has also fished in Christmas Island, the Bahamas, Belize, in Kamchatka, Chile, and on the fabled English chalk streams. He is credited with bringing beadhead flies to North America and is the inventor of the big eye hook, the magnetic net retriever, and tungsten beads for fly time. He has also about 20 fly fishing books in print, including the Orvis Fly Fishing Guide, Orvis Guide to Reading Trout Streams, the Orvis Guide to Prospecting for Trout, and the Orvis Guide Hatch Strategies, and last but not least, the Orvis Guide to Finding Trout. He has also been published in Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Catalog Age, Fly Fisherman, Gray Sporting Journal, Sporting Classics, Fly Rod and Reel, Audubon, Men's Journal, and others. Tom is the writer and narrator of the Orvis Fly Fishing Guide podcast, one of the top outdoor podcasts on iTunes. Tom, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thank you, Roger.
1: That was quite a mouthful. Thank you for that nice introduction. Yeah,
0: I even edited it, <laughs> Tom. <I> took <laughs> some stuff out.
1: <laughs>
0: You're one of those guys that I have to take some stuff out because I only leave certain space, you know, in my script here to accommodate the bio. So well, that's enough. I've been I think you've done enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually, that's one of the first questions that somebody asked us, and I thought that was a great question because I don't even know if I ever asked you that in other interviews that I've done with you, but Ron McNeil asked, how did you start out on your fly
1: fishing journey, and who were your early influencers, and why? Well, I started out, you know, my dad didn't, nobody in my family fly fish, but I went fishing with my dad, and I really loved it. He was okay about it. He wasn't a fanatic fisherman. And I decided when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, that fly fishing looked interesting, looked like fun. I could make my own flies, so I kind of taught myself. And, you know, my influencers at that time, all you had was books. If you didn't know anybody, were Joe Brooks and uh, Vince Marinaro, John Atherton, Ray Bergman, Ernie Schwiebert, some of the, the older writers on fly fishing. And then um, third time flies commercially for a fly shop run by a guy named Carl Coleman in Rochester, New York. And he was a great influence. He was the first fly fisher, the you know, real fly fisher that I met. And he's just a brilliant, brilliant angler. And he should have written the books. And I learned a, a ton from him when I was in high school. And then, uh, you know, I worked in a fly shop when I was in college and then went to Orvis right after college, applied for a job in the retail store, and uh, they never got rid of me. <laughs> You've been there ever since, huh? Yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. I mean, this is really, truly a lifelong journey for you. I mean, yeah, from- it sure is what you say, 14 years old or so, all the way yeah. to, uh,
1: to today, yeah. And I never was yeah, tired of it, Roger. I never get don't. tired of it. Never.
0: Well, nope. you're doing, I mean, it's a pretty nice job you have. I mean, you get to do something yeah. you love. You get to go to beautiful places. You get a paycheck, <laughs> which a lot of people may not get in the fly fishing industry.
1: But, yeah, it's, it's a tough uh, place to make yeah, a living for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. but And you're working from one of the premium fly fishing retailers in the world. So, yeah. I think so. I, I, yeah, I think you <laughs> got pretty good there.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, don't change now. Don't change
1: now. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not changing. Don't worry. I'm
0: not changing. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, good, good. Did you have Jack Dennis' fly tying book when you got started?
1: Or was that uh, already? No, I got it later. But that was okay. long after I started, but it was, oh. was a book I had. Probably I had it when I was in college. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't available when I was first starting out.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was that was one of the first books I got for fly I still have it. Still mm-hmm. dog eared and wore out but uh, I still have it. Yeah, just That's curious. Because there weren't many books back then,
1: you know. Um, No, there weren't.
0: And uh, certainly no videos. And uh, later we had some DVDs, but that was much later. So, um, yeah, yeah. you had to have a mentor, you know, of some sort. You did, uh, yeah. And sounds like you did a very good one. Well, let's talk tonight about how trout feed. I know we got, just to let folks know, we got a bunch of kind of miscellaneous questions in for Tom. And we'll kind of... Save those for the last because I really want to focus on how trout feed. And we'll try to answer some of those at the end in kind of a lightning round, let's call it, and short yep. but quick answers and uh, just so that you guys all get your questions answered. Let's see. So let's just try it Start out with finding trout. And I'm kind of following the outline of your newest book, which is just mm-hmm. a beautiful book. We were talking before the show about it and really comprehensive this is going to be one that you guys all want to get for your library but you start out with you know talking about how trout feed and so how do they feed and i know this is a complex question but uh, we've got to start somewhere and to find
1: trout we need to
0: know where they're feeding right so let's
1: start there what yeah. do you know about their habits well they they kind of have three strategies two of which are kind of rare The main strategy is drift feeding. So they find a place in the current where they can watch the current, they can see stuff coming down to them, and they can pluck food out of the current. Uh, It's a very efficient way of feeding. It's a good way of putting on calories without burning a lot of energy. That's the primary way, and most of the fish we catch are going to be drift feeding. Now, there's also ambushing, and this is, you know, you think of a big brown trout as doing this. Brown trout when they get above about fourteen inches, a lot of them will kind of sit back and hide in a you know a little a dark place near a rock or a root or whatever, and they'll ambush things and they'll often patrol they'll often leave that place after dark or sometimes when the water gets dirty, and they'll kind of patrol around and ambush kind of like the way a smallmouth bass operates. The third way is epibenthic feeding, which is actually going down on the bottom and grubbing things off a rock. And people think of trout as doing that often, you know, we've got to get our nymphs down on the bottom because trout are grubbing stuff off the bottom. But they're not very often because they have to burn a lot of energy to pluck a caddisfly off a rock as opposed to just sitting there and waiting for a caddis pupa to drift by where they can just slip over and and grab it. So they don't do a lot of the epibenthic feeding, but they will do it for crayfish and, you know, caddis larvae and stuff like that. But it's not as common as drift feeding. And uh, you put,
0: um, you include... Anything floating on the surface as drift feeding,
1: too? Yeah, that's drift feeding, too. Yeah, drift feeding is, you know, they might take it anywhere in the water column. They might take it close to the bottom. They might take it in mid-water, or they might come up to the surface. It's all drift feeding. Now, do
0: they, it seems like that would expend more energy than just being in a lie and moving over and grabbing a bug.
1: So does that expend more energy to come to the feeding surface? On the, feeding on the surface? Well, it depends on how deep they are. You know, you'll often see during a hatch the fish will slide into shallower water so that they basically have to just tip their head up, you know, go into a foot or two of water. And that's why you see them a lot during a hatch in shallower water so that they don't have to come up quite as far. But it's really not that much energy. They don't have to really swim. They just tip their fins. You know they're aerodynamic, and they just tip their fins, slide up, and tip their fins back down. If the water's real fast, yeah, they'll have to swim back upstream a little bit. But it's really, really super efficient and lazy. And if you watch a fish feeding, you'll see how efficient and lazy—not lazy, but efficient—they are at what they do.
0: Yeah, they've got to be to stay alive, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. They've
1: they've evolved. They've evolved to do it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, what about how their habits change during the day? Is there, you know, do they have a cycle they go through as they move from, you know, daylight to dusk?
1: Yeah, they'll move a little bit. They generally, unless it's a big brown trout that's out hunting for mice or, you know, crayfish or minnows, they'll move a little bit, and they'll often move from a little bit deeper water or faster water where they have protection into shallower water, in the main current, usually, but not super fast current. And they'll feed there until the hatch is over, and then they'll slide back down into, you know, a little bit better resting area and a little bit more protected area. I mean, a classic example is, you know, you have the tail of a pool, and if it's bright sunlight in the middle of the day, you won't see any fish there. There's nothing there. And then as the sun goes down and the bugs start hatching, all of a sudden the fish will just appear in the tail of the pool in the shallows. And they've slid down from the deeper water above to take advantage of those floating insects. It's a lot easier and more efficient to feed in the shallower tail. And then after the hatch is over, they'll go to a little more protected area.
0: Okay. So they do take a break from feeding. They're not feeding all day, all night long. From what you're no,
1: telling me, it's... I don't think so. I mean, if there's food, they'll eat. They don't rest from food, but you know, the people that have observed trout, scientists have observed trout, have watched them, and they they spend all their time inspecting the drift. But they'll only about forty percent of the time will they actually grab something. You know, they'll look, they'll okay. slide over, they'll look, they'll refuse it. But, you know, they feed most of the time, Roger, during the day. I mean, the fish that are drift feeding are sight feeders. So during the day, they will eat something if it's in their face especially. I think that's why this euro-nymphing or deep-nymphing in general is so effective because the fish maybe aren't actively feeding, but when you put a tasty morsel right in their face, they'll eat it if they're inclined, if it looks right. Yeah,
0: it's... it's. Um... Yeah, I can see what you're saying about them not being able to look or take part in everything that floats by. I mean I remember standing on a high embankment and I had a really clear view. They were like three trout and just like you say, the conveyor belt was coming down and they would just they would be in the kind of slackish water out of the current and they just go into the current and grab something, come back out. In, out in, out. I mean, yeah, and like you say, obviously they can't take everything but it was just—it was like a rhythm they had of just mm-hmm. in and out, yeah. you know, yeah. just as long as it took to get whatever was coming. Yeah. and it was just fun to watch, you know, without them being spooked or anything because I was pretty far away. But anyway, Jim in Ohio says, he asked, How far will a brown trout move in a typical day? If I have hatches going on, I'll see fish holding wherever there's a good feeding lane. But afterwards, it's like a ghost town and be a long." Walk between good holes. It's kind of like what you were just talking about, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, during hatches, they're going to be more actively feeding, and they're probably going to be in shallower water where they're easier to target. And then after that hatch, they'll generally slide into a deeper spot or a protected spot. They'll probably still feed, but they won't be as they won't move as far, and they won't feed as actively. So that's why you know we don't see them. When there's no hatch, but they're probably still around. They won't generally won't leave a pool. You know, they won't go from one pool to the next. They'll generally stay within a you know within quick swimming distance of wherever their hiding spot is. But they will move. They will move down the tail, up into the head, off into the sides, and then move back into often into the middle of the pool.
0: But you're not likely to have them run 100 yards up river or 100 yards down river unless
1: not not no not, i don't think so not often no yeah. not that far
0: unless they're spawning and at that time they're on the yeah. move but that's if they're spawning
1: situation. or if it's a big if it's a big drought that's out hunting after dark they might but, but not drift okay.
0: okay okay what about you know you talk about currents in your book and gosh you know i mean Currents can be very confusing. I know they are for me at times, you know, about how to work them, where to work them. Is there a particular current that we're looking for that's easier to fish, more productive than others?
1: Yes. And I can boil it down to three things. These are the three things you're looking for. And these are, you know, there. I see a question, what are the prime currents to fish? Yeah. Um, so. Trout prefer to feed in water that's two to four feet deep, usually. Now, they'll feed in shallower water and they'll feed in deeper. But their kind of preferred depth is two to four feet. Next, they like water that's moving about one foot per second. So what's one foot per second? Well, you have to either measure it or... You know, those people that have fished enough and know where they expect to see fish feeding are going to know what one foot per second looks like. You know, it's kind of the speed of a slow walk. Um, And then they like a current that's uniform. They don't like big swirls. They don't like big boils or standing waves. So if you can find those three things, water two to four feet deep, that's running about one to two feet per second, that's got a a, kind of a steady current, you're going to find trout.
0: Okay, okay. So you kind of answered the other question there about what currents you don't want to be in as well.
1: Yeah, you you won't see fish in true white water. You might see them on the edge of it, but white water is, for one thing, it's uh, turbulent, and they can't hold their position. Also, they can't even hold their body there because it's less dense than regular water you know without the white water so they can't really hold in it and they can't see what's going on and then they don't like swirly really swirl, big giant boils they'll feed in smaller boils but if the boil is bigger than you know in diameter than a foot or so you probably won't find uh, fish and then they generally won't be in stagnant water either, you know, less than one foot per second unless there's just a ton of food. If there's a ton of food, sometimes you'll find them in those really slow currents, but they'll be cruising. They'll generally be moving looking for the food. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. When we're looking at those currents in front of us and as those currents interact with each other, uh um, mm-hmm. If I'm phrasing this right, mm, yeah. uh, that seems to be cause a you know a challenge for many of us on how to fish those currents as they come together, as they part ways, and so forth. Um, yep. Do you have some tips on
1: what to do in those situations and what not to do? Well, generally trying to avoid drag if you're fishing a nymph for a dry fly. And first of all, I don't think you're in the game ever in trout fishing if you don't know the reach cast. So if people don't know what the reach cast is, they should go to the Google machine or go to the Orvis Learning Center and learn how to do a reach cast. It's a lot better than a mend. Mends tend to you know, we use mends a lot with squirrely currents, but they tend to move the fly and they tend to disturb the water. If you can make that mend in the air before the fly hits the water, you're gonna be much better off. So That's one way of dealing with these squirrely currents. The other way is a longer leader, you know, and a longer tippet especially. It's the mass of the fly line and the heavier part of the leader that makes our fly drag because they're attached to it. And the more fine diameter tippet you can have between the heavier part of your leader and your fly line and your fly, the less influence that fly line and leader butt are going to have on the fly. It's going to give you a little insurance before the fly starts
0: to Mm -hmm. drag. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know,
1: position is everything, Roger. I mean, you know, people say, where should I stand relative to a current? Well, you have it's situational. And every time you move five feet, the angle that you should be casting at might be different. So you have to look at every current every time you move, and you have to analyze those currents and say, okay, how can I get my fly to drift down there just like the bubbles or the debris or the insects that are drifting down? What am I going to do? Where am I going to put my fly line? Where am I going to put my leader? What angle am I going to cast at? You need to analyze that every time you move.
0: Mhm. Mhm. And with all the years you've been fishing, I'm assuming that a lot of that's intuitive at this point for you. Uh what
1: well, I- no, no well a little intuitive. Well, you know, I, sometimes I scratch my head and or sometimes I just keep getting dragged and I can't figure out how to avoid it, you know. I get stubborn and I don't wanna move but yeah, um, I don't think yeah. it really I don't really think it's that intuitive. You okay. be, that's what we love about that's what we love about, you know, fly fishing and trout fishing in particular is you gotta be thinking about it. You gotta be yeah, analyzing yeah. it all the time. Yeah. I know there's been
0: situations like that where, you know, you think, okay, I know there's a trout there. I'm trying to get to it. And no matter what you try, you can't get to where you want to be. And I guess there's always those situations where, you know, you can't get there from here. Um, yeah, and, sometimes,
1: it's, um, sometimes it's time to go look for another fish, Roger. Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll come right back,
0: and we'll talk more, and we'll talk about temperature, water chemistry, growth, that kind of thing. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, it's uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tom Rosenbauer about finding trout. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Tom, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I can only imagine all the things you've got going on, but uh, share with us a little of what's on your calendar coming up here.
1: Well, I have been in a pause, which is unusually for me this time of year Roger I usually fish oh. every day this time of year but two things happened one is that we got these horrific floods in Vermont luckily we didn't have any damage where I live on a on a river but we didn't have any damage it blew out and got dirty and nasty but I also had carpal tunnel surgery on my wrist so I was worried about missing fishing time. Well I couldn't fish anyway, so I got my stitches out today and uh the water's dropping and <laughs> I'm gonna go fishing. <laughs> do your uh P T, right? And uh I don't know. Ready. They
0: didn't tell me to do much P T, they just said use really? it. And, yeah. So Oh yeah. good. Good. It's amazing what they can do. Um Damn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I took my mother for a, she's ninety two years old, took her in for trigger finger surgery on her hand and we asked we were there for like four hours. I asked the surgeon, I said, how long is the surgery going to take? He says, about seven minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going, my God, I don't know if your experience was like that, but all this get ready prep time, you know, I, I mean, it was, but it all worked out great and uh, only took seven minutes besides the other four hours. But Yeah, my, my whole
1: man. hand took 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> You're like an assembly line in there, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: They're good. They're good. So um, anything new with uh, the upcoming season, this winter? Anything Orvis related?
1: I'm hosting some trips. I'm starting to do more trip hosting, which I really enjoy. And um, I've got two trips to Chile next winter. Uh, Both are filled. And I have a trip to the Bahamas, Middle Bite on Andros, which is not filled quite yet. But it's getting full. And then I have a trip to Three Rivers Ranch in Idaho in late September, early October. And that's, I think, got one space left. So, yeah, doing more hosting. Got some exciting ones coming up that I can't talk about right now. But I've been really enjoying doing that.
0: um, Are these open to the public?
1: Yeah, they're they're hosted trips. So somebody can sign up and go fishing with
0: them. yeah, where would people find out about that? Where do they need to go?
1: On the Orvis Travel. On the Orvis Travel. Orvis the Orvis travel.
0: Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Good, good. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And um, yeah, let's jump back in, talking about temperature, water chemistry, growth. What do we need to know about? And basically, we've been talking and we'll be talking all night about stream fishing and not lake fishing, which, Yeah. Temperature is much different. But what do we need to know about temperature and streams and rivers?
1: Well, trout are cold-blooded. All fish are cold-blooded, except maybe bluefin tuna. And temperature is everything. So, you know, when temperature is below 40, fish are going to be pretty disinclined to feed very much. They will feed, but it's usually for an hour or two a day, and then they're going to just, settle back and stay out of trouble you know when the water temperature gets to between 45 and 65 they're going to be feeding pretty actively and that's important and then generally when you know these days we stop fishing at 68 it's kind of been accepted regardless of the hudal regulations or what the states recommend because the states don't monitor all the streams people are just stopping fishing at 68 because trout can't get enough oxygen when the water gets warm and they get stressed and they can literally suffocate if we you know jerk them around and on the end of a hook and then release them they can die so if you're going to release your fish you want to stop fishing at 68 and i say i like to say 65 for brook trout because they're a little less tolerant of warm temperatures yeah and they're used to it colder water. Yeah. They, but you know, between between 45 and 65 it doesn't tell you much except the fact that if you're not catching fish, you need to either move or change your flies or change your technique because there's trout feeding somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm.
1: you got What about uh
0: it. what about the bug life as far as hatches and so forth go? I'm assuming that correlates with that 45 to It does.
1: It does. It does correlate pretty well. You know, trout have evolved to kind of mimic the activity of the insects they feed on. And the insects are cold-blooded as well. I think that in those warmer temperatures, you'll still see hatches. I think when, you know, you can get to 75 degrees and see a mayfly hatch or a caddisfly hatch. I mean, there's mayflies and caddisflies in Florida. So they can tolerate warmer temperatures than trout. But at the low end, yeah, it's you need a little rise in the water temperature before the insects are going to start getting active.
0: Yeah, I'm just looking up something here. I remember talking with um, Bill Edrington about and um, fishing the Arkansas River here in Colorado, oh, yeah. and and his thing on that was have a late breakfast <laughs> and then come out on the river and plan to fish into the night. And it was, you know, his experience that showed that, you know, getting out there at 6 in the morning isn't going to do you any good because there's no bug activity and the fish aren't feeding very heavily. But if you go and have a nice breakfast and get there about 9 or 10, then things start happening. And the main thing happening was, you know, at dusk and into the dark for the browns. Yeah,
1: yeah. Is it that way on many rivers, do you think? I think so, although I do a lot of early morning nymphing because – Light is low, and the nymphs have been drifting. You know they do this behavioral drift where they during the night they just let go and they float downstream to migrate into because they they move upstream when they mate and lay eggs, so in order to repopulate downstream, the nymphs and stuff let go and they just drift in the current and then they reattach, and that usually ends right about dawn, and the fish are pretty active because you know not all the nymphs have found a place to set back down and so it's finally light enough so that the fish can see the nymphs and so i think that dawn fishing can be good in certain areas maybe not in your area you know it's colder there colder in the uh, early morning because you're much higher altitude but uh, i have done i have done very well early morning nymphing and then i often find a peak of feeding and bugs around uh, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. This is, you know, other than early season, other than April. And then it, it is pretty slow in the afternoon, I find, in most places, unless it's early season when that's the warmest part of the day. But generally, you know, the sun's high, and although there might be grasshoppers and beetles around, it gets a little slow in the afternoon and then picks up toward dark. Yeah, we found that
0: fishing the san juan river down in new mexico you know it made more sense to go eat lunch take a nap and then come back out at three or four in the afternoon because it was slow in the early after and mid afternoon mid-afternoon, but then things picked up towards dusk so yeah
1: but you know, also um, one of the things i've learned roger is there is no future in predicting when the fish are going to feed <laughs> i've been i've been on the river at some really stupid times when i didn't think anything was going to be going on and it was lights out so you know fish when you have time and when it's pleasant for you and you may be yeah. surprised even if the experts tell you it's not going to be any good you never know yeah you never <laughs> yeah, know
0: yeah. you can't predict you might, this stuff you might find that one little spot where things are raging and uh yep, uh, yep. yeah yeah Greg Nichols in Loxley, Alabama says when does it cool down enough to safely for the trout fish for trout and smaller smaller streams of Vermont so does so going back to what you said 45 to 65 still apply except for the brookies maybe that's Yeah what you're about.
1: yeah but the thing is with our small streams in Vermont most of them are coming out of the mountains and they're high elevation and there a lot of springs up there not like alkaline springs, like spring creeks, but there's lots of springs. And actually, our small stream fishing in Vermont is best in midsummer because the water warms up a little bit. You know, warms up to 60 degrees or so. So unless we have a really hot spell, with you know, our temperatures typically go down in the 50s, 50 50, you know, 50s or 60 at night. That cools the water down. So, you know, if we get a stretch of where it doesn't cool below 65 at night, then yeah, you might find some streams that are too warm. But generally, small streams fish well all summer in Vermont.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Um, Similar, I'm sure in Colorado, it's the same thing up in your mountain streams. They don't get too warm, I don't believe. No, no, they don't. <laughs> yeah, just uh,
0: uh, maybe in like what we were talking about before the show, some of these streams that are out in the, the meadows, you know, where they get a lot of sun. But a lot of the streams that are in wooded areas and stuff are real cold, (laughs) real cold. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Gordon in Deerfield, Massachusetts, wants to know about stillwater fishing. If fish are in deep, cold water, is it okay to fish for trout if you release them quickly?
1: I don't know. Um, know, You're you're probably going to be pulling them up through... 70-degree water, water, 72, 74-degree water if they're in cold, deep water. I honestly don't know what that would do to them, so I'm not sure. It might even add more stress to them. It might. Coming from cold
0: water into warmer water and
1: having to go back through that. yeah. I don't have any idea. I really don't know.
0: Yeah. This question came up to me because I was teaching my son-in-law how to fish this past week as I talked to you in these mountain meadows. And he asked me the question, you know, you know, what affects the growth of the fish? And I was trying to explain to him the different factors of that. But I want to get your take on that because, you know, a lot of us associate small fish with small creeks. But, yeah. I mean, I've caught a 14-inch brown trout in a creek I could literally just jump over easily. Yeah. yeah. And that I never thought I, I would have caught. Yep. You know, I was surprised. Yep. So what all is involved in that, and, you know, what can our expectations be?
1: Because well, you also be, wrote I mean, that whole
0: book on small streams, you know, that
1: I know yeah, we talked about. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated issue, but it's, it's going to be related, first of all, to the food supply. Is there, a you know, an abundant food supply of high-caloric things like, you know, baitfish, crayfish, scuds, sow um, mayflies, and cats to a certain degree? How easy is it going to be? To get to that food, does a fish going to have to work really hard to get it, or is it just going to be able to gobble it up? And then what's the growing season? You know, a lot of these um, high-altitude streams don't have big fish for a number of reasons. One is that there isn't much food in those streams. They're pretty infertile, and they have a short growing season. I mean, You know, in a tailwater or spring creek, the fish get big because the water temperature is pretty constant. And... They have a good supply of food, and they can eat all year long, whereas, you know, in a mountain stream, it's going to get down in the, you know, 35-degree range. Fish aren't going to be feeding much, and there's not going to be any food available anyway. They're just going to kind of coast through the wintertime, so they don't really have an opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. I know... And and maybe it's the Spring Creek aspect of things, too. I remember a friend of my grandfather's up in Wisconsin who would pull out uh, monster browns out of these small creeks. um, Yeah. And he was like one of these guys that was born in the woods, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. probably probably raised by wolves or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) he would crawl along the bank and do kind of the the noodling that they do for catfish, except just,
1: you know. yeah.
0: Pet pet the browns and pull them out, but uh, I was always amazed at the size of those fish, and they they must have, I suppose, a lot of those same elements we were just talking about, you know, consistent temperature, good food supply made for those large fish. They were probably eating
1: the smaller trout. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where you have brown trout, Roger... There's always a chance for a big fish. They just, seem to a be able to, they just seem to be able to figure it out and find a food supply. And if there isn't, <laughs> they'll probably leave. Yeah. Yeah. You can never yeah. underestimate a brown trout stream, no matter how small it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, time for another quick break here, Tom. I'll be right back, and we'll continue yeah. on. Enrico Pagliesi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tom Rosenbauer about finding trout. If you'd like to ask Tom a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Tom, we do have a couple questions that came in here on the Internet. Let me just see what we've got here. Uh and I don't know what he means by feed, but anyway, I'll read this one to you. Paul in Franklin, North Carolina. I know of several holes in the river I fish where if I throw feed out, they will absolutely attack it. I can go to that same area a day later or two later and throw everything I have at them, and they will not take it. Note, they do not get regularly fed, and this is a native trout river. So there's not really a question there, Tom.
1: <laughs> I guess. The, the, the reason he can't catch them is they're looking for more pellets and they're going to wait they're to looking for, for more pellets. pellets. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
0: And um, that is um, in a lot of private fisheries that I found out that is a common practice to feed fish and keep them big and so forth, you know, in a pay to play area. but um, yeah. But I don't know. He says this is a native trout river. That's. You probably shouldn't be putting them in there anyway, Paul. So anyway, well,
1: I'm not we'll going we'll to touch, touch that one, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, can, yeah. you can figure what I, I might say.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Phil McCartney in Kentucky wrote, and he says, isn't it true that finding trout is not the same as seeing trout? In fact, if I see a trout, they tend to let me know they are smarter than me. If I do not see a trout, I can claim there were no trout there, but uh, (laughs) not that they outsmarted me. (laughs) Should we fish where they should be and not try to see them? And and that's an interesting question, you know, blind casting versus sight fishing.
1: I think we should because it's rare to have sight fishing opportunities. I mean, we all love it when there's a hatch and we can see the fish and we know they're there, and uh, sight nymphing without an indicator or, without euro nymphing on the bottom to a visible trout is really fun, one of the most fun things to do. But it's rare and it's it's a special yeah. treat, except in, you know, some spring creeks and tailwaters. But yeah, we need to they're really well camouflaged and often if you can see them they've probably already seen you and they're spooked. Yeah. So yeah, we need that's why that's why I wrote this book. We need to narrow it down to where we think there are going to be trout and throw our flies out there and hope that somebody eats them.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, um, moving on down, and then we'll talk about the different riffles, runs, and so forth, but talking about landscape cover and water levels, what are the prime types of covers we should be fishing?
1: Yeah, it's going to vary from river to river and what species and everything, but One thing that people should be aware of is that you don't want to always just fish close to cover. Fish do need cover. They need protection from predators, but they will move out from that cover if there's a better place to feed. If there's an easier place to feed, drift feeding, whether it's rising or eating nymphs, they will move from that protected area to get into a better feeding lane. And when we spook them, then they dart back to the cover. So that being said, you know, anything that a fish can hide under or nearby, and one of the things is depth. You know, water that's over three feet deep is good cover. Ospreys can't penetrate more than about three feet, ospreys and eagles. So if a fish is in six feet of water, probably going to be safe from an osprey, even if the osprey can see it. Not safe from merganser, unfortunately, but safe from a lot of birds and probably safe from herons. Riffles are really good cover, and people don't think of riffles as cover. But broken water does hide the fish. And you can find some fish in fairly shallow riffles in the middle of the day with no rocks or logs or uh, deep water immediately nearby i mean they'll be somewhere nearby but you you can find fish in in broken water where you might not think they'd be and you know overhanging trees are good um you know it varies weed beds you know anything that can hold a fish and they will be sort of close to that cover but not right next to it you don't need to fish right alongside a rock or a log but I suppose some places where there is cover,
0: overhanging trees or bushes, may not be a good feeding lie, right? Yeah, I mean, it might not be. Yeah, it yeah, might
1: not be. So the fish may hide there when they're not actively feeding. You know, they might eat a nymph here and there or, or an ant that falls in the water. But then when when the hatch starts going and the insects are in the primary currents, which they will be because they're drifting downstream and they're going to be in the prime currents, then the fish are going to move from that underneath those trees to uh, get to the food.
0: When, you know, as I've mentioned a couple times now, high mountain meadows I was fishing last week uh, where there's really no real covers in the way of bushes or overhanging trees or anything because Mm -hmm. these are high mountain meadows. Um, Yeah. Seems to me the only cover they have is potentially the riffles right next to the bank right overhanging yep, yep. uh grass or something like that then yeah. into a, a deeper part of the cooler run right mm-hmm. yeah 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 where and and that's a place where you have to be pretty stealthy in your approach because of because they can see you and it's totally exposed it works both ways right
1: in other yeah ways, They're always looking for predators. They're always on the alert. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, it's not rocket science to find out where the fish are in those little, you know, little mountain streams. They're going to be in the the water. It has a little bit of depth to it or a little bit of current. Uh, Right. But catching them, you know, without spooking them, that's another story.
0: Yeah, that's right. Right. Jeffrey in Loveland, Colorado wrote in and says, how do you tackle finding fish at different water levels? Especially with respect to not disturbing the fish, I'm assuming he's meaning spooking the fish yeah um,
1: well in uh, in high water level, the fish are going to be in slower water, they're typically going to be along the banks, they're going to probably be in shallower water than you'd expect them to be, even places that have you know were dry before the water went up. The water's going to be a little dirty, and you can probably get pretty close to them, you know you always have to be aware of where your fly line lands and where your shadow lands and where the sun is so that you don't disturb the fish. But, you know, and then in in lower water, low, clear water, they're probably going to be either in water that has some depth or water that has a riffle to it. And, you know, with respect to not disturbing the fish, there's two ways that we disturb fish, I think, that we spook fish the most. One is that we wade too fast and we don't pay attention to waves that we're pushing out into the water. And then too much false casting. You know, a fly line whipping through the air is going to its going to scare fish if it's over the top of them. So you need to, yeah. you need to false cast off to the side or don't false cast, you know. If you can get away with not false casting, you're going to be better off.
0: Right, right. Jeffrey also wrote in and asked, would you ask, for you to please discuss your approach to a new stream, Uh, Mm. you know, I guess how you analyze it, how you look at it. Yeah. uh, what, What are the things there that are important?
1: Well, first thing I'll do is spend a lot of time standing or sitting on the bank and not getting right in the water and see what's going on. Are there, you know, predators around that might spook the fish? Are there any insects hatching? I'll, you know, shake the bushes along the edge to see if, If there's any bugs there, I might turn over a few rocks just to see—not specifically to to help me pick a fly, but just to see how much food there is in the stream. And then I'll just generally in a new stream, Jeffrey, I'll move a lot because I don't know yet what kind of water the fish like, and so you know I'll take a. Take a half dozen casts in one spot, and then move and take a half dozen casts, and I'll try, you know, I'll try different types of flies. My go-to is generally a dry dropper, uh, you know, halfway decent-sized floating, floating fly with a nymph hung on a piece of 5x, and um, if it's really dirty, then I'll probably fish a streamer, or maybe swing a wet fly. But I'll move around a lot. I think that's one of the most important things because not all parts of a a stream are created equal. And since I don't know it, I don't know yet where the fish like to be. Every river is a little different.
0: Right, right. Go back to, um, well, yeah, and what we've already talked about, plus what we're going to talk about as far as where these fish are and, and finding them will you just kind of have to apply that template to everywhere you go, right? Look at the ripples, yeah. look at the runs, yep. you know, what's happening, do your analysis. And then, but you say you move pretty quickly up the stream. I do,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't trash through the water. By moving, I mean I'll, yeah, I'll step right. into a particular place and I'll fish it as thoroughly as I think I can. and um, And then I'll get out of the river and move so I don't disturb the water, I'll get out right, of the river yeah. and slide back in somewhere else.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I wasn't referring to going through the river. <laughs> it's
1: just, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just yeah, wanted to make sure people sign. understood that. But, you know, you yeah. could be fishing over nothing. You could be fishing over an area that's completely devoid of fish, and until you figure out where they are by catching that one, you know, stupid fish, you <laughs> oh, that's where they are. That's where they live, and they like that kind of water. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um let's see
0: here. We've got um a long way to go. <laughs> let's talk about ripples. Uh yeah, I mean They're going to have to buy, know, They're going to have to buy my book, Roger. What they're gonna, gonna I mean that's the whole point. I mean, I think we've only covered like uh two pages in your book. <laughs> so uh yeah, everybody needs to buy your book. Um uh, ripples when you know Okay, so I put the question in there, when should you fish riffles? Is there, you know, a particular time of day when you should fish riffles as opposed to other times, or are you fishing, and I'm just going to, you know, talk about riffles runs everything at once, if they're there, fish them, or are there better times to fish them than not?
1: I always fish riffles regardless, unless the riffles are so shallow that they couldn't possibly hold a fish, but I don't think there's any time when you shouldn't fish a riffle okay. <laughs> they're just they're the food producers, they provide cover. you know generally, I like in a riffle, I like to look for a little bit of a deeper spot, um, you know okay. a little slot, a little you can usually tell that there's a deeper slot, there's a kind of a, a smooth, what I call a lens on the surface. And that's usually where the riffle's just a little bit deeper, and there might be a slot in there. Um, a, where a riffle dumps into deeper water, like a pool, is you know a go-to place. There's always fish there. Okay. okay. The, riffle, the riffles produce the food. That's where the bugs come from, and fish will be in the pool to take advantage of the deeper water for protection. And, yeah, it's just just a great place.
0: Fish are also holding at the top of a, a riffle, right? And Sometimes, the yeah. yeah.
1: Sometimes. Yeah, they could be anywhere within a riffle if there's a deep enough slot in it. You know, some riffles just hold fish from one bank to the other, from one end to the other. <laughs> and you're more,
0: you yourself are more camouflaged because of the riffles as well, right?
1: Yeah, you can get That's closer the to fish in riffles because the service is broken. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The the other reason I love them. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it's a a food conveyor belt there going through. Um, So it sounds like when you fish a riffle, are you fishing it from the top down? Are you fishing it from the bottom up? Is there a particular method you use?
1: Yes. I fish it from the top down, I fish it from the bottom up. I fish it from the middle (laughs) down. Uh, It depends. You know, you got to. I mean, that's why I like to stand on the bank a little bit and look, say, okay, where's the best place going to be? I can't fish this whole riffle because it's too big, you know. It's a half mile long and, you know, the river's 100 feet across. So I'll look at it and say, okay, where are the little deep, slower, little bit slower pockets? Um, Where are the food lanes? Are there, you know, where's the bubble line? Um, Where's the main current thread? Yeah, you have to sort it out before you jump in. But if I'm fishing a wet fly, you know, I want to swing a wet fly, which is a good way to cover a lot of water, then I'll start at the head and fish down. If I'm fishing dry or nymph, I might, you know, fish straight across or I might fish straight upstream. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. Or Um, anything in
1: between. Or anything in between.
0: Yeah. Uh, What about runs?
1: Where are fish holding in runs? So a run, I should describe run because it's, you know, hydrologists and uh, biologists don't call anything runs. They either call them riffles or pools. And oh, to me, okay. to me, a run is kind of a fisherman's term more than an official biological or hydrological term. But to me, a run is um, a section of deeper water. It's deeper than a riffle, but it doesn't have as distinct head middle, and tail as a pool. So it's just kind of a little bit faster, a little bit deeper water. Um, people know a what bit longer. talking about. This. Yeah, a little bit longer. And, again, the, where are the fish holding and run, It's going to vary from run to run. I can't tell you where to look in a run. Look for that, you know, two to four feet deep, one to mm-hmm. two feet per second, and steady current, and you're probably going to find the fish.
0: Well, that could be holding anywhere.
1: Yeah, they could be holding anywhere, yeah. Okay.
0: Again, a prime holding area, would it be at the, the top or the bottom of the rub?
1: Are you got to look rub? at it, Roger. you got to look okay. at it. It could be at the top, the bottom, the middle, three-quarters. It could be anywhere. Um, you have to look at the water, and you have to you know, kind of use what you've learned about how trout feed and, and what they like and figure out what's best. I can show you a run where they're always up in the head. I can show you a run where they're in the tail, and I can show you a run where they're in the middle. Um, they're all different. Everyone's different.
0: Okay. Okay. When you're looking at that run, you know you're analyzing it and you're trying to look. You know, when I look at a run, sometimes I see a lot of water. I don't see anything specific there. Um, like you say, they could be at the top, they could be at the bottom, they could be in the middle. How do you go about? You gave me your three guidelines, you know, two to four, yeah. two to four PT, yeah. water one foot per second, and so forth, and uniform flow. What else are we looking for? I mean, it's, to many people okay. I know, this, you know, it looks yeah. like a okay. like the ocean where, where yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, I can't see anything, you know, where is it?
1: So there will be clues if you look hard enough. Um, okay, look at the banks. Is there a deep? Is there water running along the bank that's kind of deep and slow? Um, And the other thing you want to bear in mind, if the water is really fast, if most of the water in that run is really fast, find the slowest water. If the water is really slow, find the fastest water. Mm, Because trout like that kind of in between, you know, they don't like stagnant water, but they don't like rushing turbulent water. So look for those in between areas. Okay. That's a good tip. Yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: then look for structure. I mean, you know, you may not see any rocks in the river, but you might see those little, those little bumps on the surface to tell you, oh, there's a couple of big rocks in that area, so there might be some fish holding in front of those rocks.
0: Right. Right. Um, John Murphy in San Francisco wrote, how often have you hooked trout that were hanging out in the hydro cushion in front of exposed river boulders? I target this zone all the time, but rarely if ever seem to find them there what's your experience
1: i find more fish uh immediately in front of boulders than i do or slightly to one side than i do behind a big boulder always i never catch fish right behind a boulder never ever 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 and but you know what where john fishes could be different could be different situation maybe the fish don't like to be in front of those boulders you know the the rounder the boulder the less spots there are going to be in front of it if it's like a bowling ball there isn't going to be much of a cushion in front of it if it's kind of squarish or you know if it's got some nooks and crannies in it it's kind of you know ugly broken up piece of rock then they're going to be more likely to be fish in front of it but you know every river is a little bit different and Maybe in that particular river, the fish just don't like being in front of exposed boulders.
0: Well, when you say, and this can kind of merge into pools and and flat water and pocket water, when you say you never catch fish behind the boulder? um,
1: No, not immediately uh, behind. Not immediately behind. Right, yeah,
0: yeah, where you think it's, okay, it's a really slow spot there, but but it's not right. a good feeding spot, right? It could be a place to
1: rest No, it's not or a good feeding but... spot. There's two reasons. If the water is low and the boulder is exposed, the boulder is going to is going to strain all the food off to the side, and it's going to be a dead zone in there behind that boulder. There's no food there. It's it's like a desert, and and there's going to be not much current there either. If the boulder is submerged, chances are there's going to be a lot of turbulence behind the boulder. And, again, we, you know, I've talked about this previously that trout don't like real turbulent water. But down below the boulder, and it can be anywhere from, you know, four or five feet to 20 or 30 feet below the boulder, there's going to be a spot where there isn't as much turbulence and the water is still slowed. I mean, you know, a boulder in the middle of the river can slow the current down for quite a distance. And in that spot is a really good spot to fish. Just not okay. immediately behind okay. the rock.
0: So those seams that the rock makes on either side yeah. of it uh, yeah. is too turbulent is what you're saying. At the, the, at seams the that, up by yeah, the rock. Yeah. yeah, well,
1: immediately behind the rock, I mean, it causes yeah. these big pillows of turbulence. Now, there's two seams. There's a seam that comes off each side of the boulder. And generally, they come together at a point. It's almost like a triangle downstream of the rock. And that's right. the spot, that's the spot usually where the best fish are going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So pools and flat water. Um, you had described, you know, what the hydrologists call a, a pool as opposed to a run. Um, yeah. But are these, and you had said before where there's you know stagnant or slow water is not usually a good place to fish. So are we looking in these kinds of cases, pools and flat waters, for just enough current to where the water's moving, where it can move insects for feeding yeah. purposes? Or the what, best what are we looking the, for
1: there? Of course, the head and the tails of pools can be a really good places to fish. Right. The tail right. concentrates food, particularly during a hatch. So the head of the pool, it's got some turbulent water that provides protection, although fish don't like to feed in turbulent water, they'll go they'll duck under it to use it for protection when they're spooked. Um and then they'll slide off to the edges of that turbulence to feed. But in the middle of the pool where it's flat, the best thing to do, the first thing you want to do is to look for the bubble line or the debris line or the foam line. You know, you everybody's heard the platitude foam is home. Right. That's one fishing platitude that should be repeated, most of them. like That's why they call it fishing and not catching. Uh, that <laughs> one should be banned from our lexicon. But foam is, home is a good one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you will see that foam line, one or two threads, going down through that flat water. And that foam line is going to be the same place where all the insects drift, whether they're submerged nymphs, or whether they're uh, mayflies or flies on the surface. Uh, When a beetle or a grasshopper falls in, it's going to be drawn into that spot. So that's the first thing you look for is that foam line. And And then you start looking for places. Okay, is there a big rock in the middle of the pool on the bottom where it's good protection? Does that foam line go close to the rock? That's a good spot. Or does that foam line run along a deep bank? That's a good spot. So that foam line can really help you because that flat water—it's tough to read. It all looks the same, and so right, you have right. to—you have to start looking for other little clues in that flat water.
0: Any particular techniques you use when the
1: water is barely moving? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I usually look for rising fish. And if there are no <laughs> rising, the dry
0: <laughs> if there's
1: no rising fish, then I'll generally go find myself some faster water. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the only time I might blind fish in the middle of a pool is if I know there's a ton of fish in a particular pocket. I might nymph it, or if it's grasshopper season. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's grasshopper get season, it. yeah. Uh, yeah, you you might be able to blind fish with a grasshopper or hopper dropper up through the pool, but it's tough. It's tough to fish yeah. that kind of water if, if the fish aren't actively feeding. Really tough. Right. Okay, pocket water.
0: <laughs> and then I was reading your book uh, about pocket water, and, um, you know, this is seemingly some of the more difficult water to fish, even though it's generally small yeah. water. Uh yeah. But as you said in your book, there's only certain places those fish are going to be, and getting to them is the, is the challenge. So what's the best way to get that fly to that fish in pocket water?
1: Well, first you have to find out where the spots are. If you're in a big river and there's a lot of pocket water, you really don't want to just wade in because pocket water is tough to wade. You can you can exhaust yeah. yourself or fall in. So you have to kind of stand on the bank and say, okay, where are the spots where there isn't so much turbulence, where the water might be a little deeper and slower, Um, Is there a spot where four or five rocks form like a little miniature pool? I'll go for that first. Um, And in pocket water, Roger, probably the best thing to do is to make short casts because there are all kinds of squirrely, conflicting currents all over the place, and you just can't make a 50-foot cast in pocket water. Your fly and your line are going to go, in totally different directions. You're not going to be able to control. You're not going to be, probably not going to be able to hook the fish. So you know the best thing to do is to wade carefully, but get as close as you can to that pocket that you want to fish. And then generally I fish from upstream. But yeah, short cast and as little fly line on the water as possible. You know, hold your rod high. If you if you don't even put any fly line on the water and just use a long leader that can work pretty well.
0: Right, right, okay.
1: But you're, um, you're not going to have long drifts because your fly's going to drag no. or it's going to get hooked on a rock pretty quickly. So you, well, your drift you may make, only be
0: best. five feet or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Mean, or a lot. a lot of those yeah. cases, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But in, on the other side of that, it should be, to me, fairly obvious of where those fish might be because there's not that many places, right? I mean, yeah. It's going to be either yeah. highly turbulent or dead behind the rock, and you're looking for those seams again, but mm-hmm. in, a, yeah. in a really short span, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Jeff Arterburn lives in New Mexico and Colorado. This is a long one, but um, I think it's worth it. Movement of trout to utilize different habitats during aquatic insect catches. It's fascinating in the rivers I fish. Free stones and tailwaters and, for example, my favorite hatches of drake mayflies bring large numbers of fish into surprisingly shallow riffle sections where they are distributed widely, very accessible to the angler. Without a hatch occurring, these sections seem to have few fish present. My question involves the distribution of fish during the off periods and when nothing significant is hatching. Are there any general tensor consistency And the percent distribution of fish, where they can be found across the different types of habitat: pool, glide, riffle, run.
1: Well, I would say that if Jeff has seen a, I've seen a riffle where there's lots of fish feeding. I would look for the closest place that has a little bit deeper or a little bit faster water, or some sort of good cover, because those fish will go go hide a little bit if they're not actively feeding they'll find a little bit more comfortable place where predators can't get at them you know they often often during a hatch they're going to throw caution to the wind and you know the hell with the ospreys and the the herons there's food there they're going to get it that's why you know we can often get closer to them during a hatch because they just they don't multitask very well they shut everything else off um, but once they stop eating actively, they say, oh, I don't think I should be hanging around here in the middle of the riffle. I'm going right. to go find some place a little bit more comfortable. So, you know, it's there, I don't think there's any there's any general rule. I mean, there's no rules in fly fishing, really. I don't think there's any general rule <laughs> that I could give you. Um, yeah. They're just going to be, you know, look for a place where, a trout can go and be comfortable and not be seen by predators.
0: Do trout move into the riffles to feed and then float back down into a run or a pool? Uh, Yeah, they'll
1: generally generally go upstream into a riffle and then drop back down. I don't think it's not as common in my experience, and this is just guesswork, it's not as common for a fish to actually leave the tail of a pool and go into a riffle down below. I think that they right. generally come up from deeper water and then they drop back because it's easier to it's easier to drop back. If they drop down into a riffle, then they have to fight the current, you know, to get back to get back upstream and they might expose themselves in shallow water so I think that they generally do, move up. Do they um but they won't are they moving
0: into a riffle to feed for a hatch or because there is no hatch happening? In other words, is, you understand what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, they might be living words, in they, the riffle. They could be, they okay, could be they living in the riffle. Yes, I okay. mean, if, if the riffle's got enough protection and provides some constant food, they might stay in the riffle. Okay. We may not see them because they're not feeding, but they may still be there in that riffle, particularly if it has a deep slot in it. So, yeah, some fish move up from a a pool or deeper water, but some fish will live in a riffle throughout the season.
0: Okay, okay. Um, Okay, running out of time, we're going to have to go uh, lightning round here. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Chuck in Placerville, California, on a tough day when you're not getting bites, what tactic would you try to see if you can get an eat?
1: I'll do something that I haven't done yet. I'll try something else. <laughs> okay, okay. I, right? I thought you are like getting the bite. It's not working, so I'm going to try something else.
0: Okay. Do something else. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um assuming you're
0: canvassing expected good trout habitat, what fly offering process do you go through before leaving that area if that process does not produce?
1: Um I'm pretty impatient and if, you know, if, if I don't interest a fish in a few dozen casts, then I'm out of there. Are you
0: in this the, Now, that that's,
1: that's dry dropper nymph, you know, prospecting. If a fish is rising and continues to rise, I will stay there till it gets dark. <laughs> Cuz I got a target okay. and if I don't yeah. I don't spook yeah. them, I'm staying there. But if I don't yeah. see any fish then I'm going to move on pretty quickly.
0: Do you tend to move on first or change the fly first?
1: Oh, I move on before I change flies. Okay. Because um, because I've I've already thought about what fly I'm putting on. I've either right. talked to a guide or or I've fished the river before. or I did my research on the internet and I know what probably should work. If I know there are fish there, I'll change fly. But if I don't, now nah, I'm gonna I'm I'm not nah i am going to i am i am not going to change flies. I'm gonna move on.
0: Okay, when fish and I think you just answered this, but uh, when fish are not rising, depending on water type, what tactics do you prefer to prospect for fish?
1: Yeah, generally dry dropper or a streamer. You know, if the water's dirty or high, streamer and dry dropper if uh, fish aren't rising. You know, I like to fish a dry and a nymph at the same time.
0: Uh, Michael in Colorado Springs, I'm curious exactly what a trout is doing when it splashes the surface virtually on top of your flies. I assume that it's a refusal on either your dry or your emerger dropper. What is the fish doing when you observe this?
1: Yeah, it's often a refusal. I mean, fish do miss flies sometimes. They don't always hit what they're going after, but generally they do. So if the fish is splashing, it's refusing your fly. And two things, the most common reasons for that, one is the fly is dragging at the last minute. They put on the brakes. They move for the fly. They've already got some momentum. They put on the brakes and don't open their mouth, but their momentum still carries them through the surface, and they make a splash. So it's either, generally either the fly dragging at the last minute or maybe the fly is too large. That can be, those are the two okay. most common things.
0: Okay. Gary Kaufman, North Carolina. What matters most, fly size, color, or presentation? Uh,
1: in my opinion, it's, yes. <laughs> it's, present, it's presentation, but fly size is going to be, if there's a hatch, Fly size is going to be just as important as presentation. If there's not okay. a hatch, then presentation is it's all about presentation.
0: Okay. Uh, Bob, Bob Nunn, have you tried the Spotlight Caddis Emerger as a searching fly?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it works. A bunch of my buddies fish it a lot.
0: Okay. Okay. Leonard in England. Okay. How does one know what size tippet x number to use for a particular fly size? For example, size 18 dry fly, etc.
1: Well, you can either divide the hook size by three, or you can go to the internet and there's tippet to fly size charts everywhere.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So Gary and Kaufman in North Carolina is buttering you up here. So first, I found you to be the best source of education and entertainment for fly fishing. I've read your books and watched your videos, several of which address the 12 essential flies, and have adjusted my fly box accordingly. However, if you had one, if you had to choose one fly only, what would it be?
1: I don't answer that question because if I had to choose one fly, I'd stop fishing because it's all, it's <laughs> no all, all, about, <laughs> it's all about it's all about different flies. So, uh, Ramona I, I, and Fairbanks. It, lightning round, light, that's it. That's okay, it. Okay, okay. <laughs>
0: Ramona at Fairbanks, when do you use a non-slip loop knot?
1: I use it sometimes on trout streamers and uh, often in salt water, but not as much as a lot of people use it.
0: Okay, okay. Um, when using a ten-foot nymphing rod, can I get away with using lighter tippets as the rod is more flexible?
1: Yes, if it's a three or four weight, yeah, ten foot five weight, you're still gonna have some pretty good zing to it, but yeah, ten yeah. foot three weight nymphing rod, yeah, you can use lighter zippets, okay,
0: um, we're gonna call it the others are pretty miscellaneous and not really applicable, so um, good job, Tom. We gotta call it quits here, but stick with me because we're gonna give away some prizes here. And I may need your help to make sure I get the right answer when I ask the question. So uh, okay. hang tight. All yeah, right. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Flyfishers International, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and we're going to be giving away a copy of your latest book, The Orvis Guide to Finding Trout, courtesy of Lions Press. So hang tight, and we'll be back and give away those prizes in just a moment. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a -a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope for each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fly fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. Again, fishon.org, or you can call them at 616-855-4017, 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link under the show on our homepage that says, what do you think of this show? Just click on that link, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some prizes. Uh, The winners for our drawings tonight are selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for the show, tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on a chance to, to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support. And if you don't win tonight, go join. So uh, let's see, uh, get my database going here. And it looks like Mike Murray in Ohio. Mike Murray in Ohio is our winner for that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. So congratulations, Mike. I know you'll enjoy that. And now we're giving away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And to find out more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. tu.org. And again, if you don't win tonight, go join them. A great, another great organization to support. And let's see, that's going to be Rodney Gilge, Gilge, Rodney Gilge in Washington. So Congratulations, Ronnie, and I uh, hope you enjoy your membership to uh, Trout Unlimited. And now we're going to give away a copy of Tom's latest book, The Orbis Guide to Finding Trout, courtesy of Lyons Press. And let me clear my queue here. Now, the way we do this is uh, I'm going to pose a question, and um, then you go to that form on our homepage and fill that out with the correct answer. First person that gets the correct answer wins. And you'll get a copy of Tom's book, uh, The Orbis Guide to Finding Trout. So the question is, is uh, Tom only mentioned one kind of cast that uh, during the whole show, what was the name of that cast that he thought was something you just have to know how to do? What's the name of that cast? So let's, uh, we got to give him a moment here. I think this one's going to be a pretty easy one. Um, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you think so? Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I give them too hard and I have to come up with another question. So uh, <laughs> uh, we're running short on time, so I figured I'd try to make it easier. Let's see here. <laughs> Still waiting for things to come in here. And um, let's see here. Okay. Things are starting to come in uh, uh, and it looks like um Victor Hahn in Golden, Colorado says reach cast. He's the first one that entered that in. Is that the right answer Tom?
1: That is the right answer. I That's did make right a sidecast, but kind of just uh, just briefly, so the reach cast would be the right answer.
0: Yeah, you pretty much condemned us if we didn't know that, cast when you talked about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Victor. Victor, send me your address, your shipping address for this book uh, in the same place that you answered, and we'll be uh, good to go and get that book sent out from Lions Press to you. So thanks for playing and paying attention, and uh, I hope you enjoy that book. Um, Tom, thanks again so much for being with us tonight. I know you're a busy man, and... um, I am glad I got you at kind of a downtime here. So <laughs> I was able to get you on my yeah. calendar, which I, I really appreciate. Uh, but thanks for sharing your knowledge with us again. Everybody always appreciates it. and nice Oh, it's
1: us. always fun, Roger. I, I always enjoy it. And those were some great questions, really, really good questions.
0: Well, good. I hope we uh, we all got educated tonight. And I, I know many of us did, so uh, thanks again. Hopefully, you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu. The archive, you'll find over 100 or 370 shows. Uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, finding trout, that kind of thing. And uh, I think it'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find out there. Our next broadcast will be on August 9th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'm going to interview Michelle White. And the topic for our show will be Subaru Brookie venues in South Park, Colorado. Subaruable, if that's not a, a term you know, means you can get to it in a Subaru, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you don't need a, a raised uh, Jeep to get there. Michelle's home is the uh, ranges in South Park, Colorado, where she guides out of her fly shop, tumbling trout. South Park is known for the Dream Stream, 11 Mile Canyon, but there are many other beautiful places to fish. The Mosquito Range, Terriel Mountains, and the tributaries of the South Fork and Middle Fork of the South Platte River offer engaging group trout fishing with incredible scenery. So join us and learn more about what South Park has to offer fly fishers. And to do this, just uh, under Michelle's picture on our homepage, just click on one of those calendar icons, and you can add this show to your calendar. You'll be all set to attend the live show. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Lions Press, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Enrico Piglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.